Our next speaker will be Mary Neal Mitchell, who is Associate Professor of History at the University of New Orleans, a PhD from New York University. She has received fellowships and awards from the American Council of Learned Societies, the Harry Frank Guggenheim Foundation, the Gilder Lehrman Institute, the Massachusetts History Society, Historical Society, the American Studies Association, and the American Historical Association. Molly is author of Raising Freedom's Child, Black Children and Visions of the Future After Slavery, published in 2008, as well as articles and reviews on race, slavery, and emancipation in the US South and the Americas. She is currently working on a new project about race, slavery, and the Fugitive Slave Act, tentatively titled The Real Ida May, Race, Fiction, and Daguerreotypes in a Story of Anti-Slavery. I was once assigned um, a topic for a talk. Um, usually you have to come up with your own topic, but someone assigned me a topic which was the Civil War we don't remember. And so I used some of the pictures that I'm gonna show here um, uh, for that particular talk. Um, for the most part, these are images that few historians have been aware of um, until fairly recently, and certainly um, much less the, the broader public. They're not sort of, sort of iconic, excuse me, photographs from the Civil War. They're not, um, uh, they weren't taken by Matthew Brady or said to have been taken by Matthew Brady, and they're not battlefield photographs, and in some cases, um, these pictures are not even easily understood um, just by looking at them, without any context, you, you, you don't necessarily know what's going on in, in these photographs. Um, certainly not in the same way you might if you, you might think you know what's going on if you look at a portrait of General Lee or, or you look at a battlefield photograph, you, you, you think you understand what's going on at least. And these, um, I think, are slightly different. So what I'm going to talk about a little bit is um, the use of photography during the Civil War and the sort of Civil War era um, as propaganda. I think that anti-slavery activists were arguably some of the first modern humanitarians in the sense of the way in which they launched their um, campaign against um, slavery. I mean, in the way, I think we can recognize some things in their strategies that you can still see in humanitarian campaigns today. I don't know if you're familiar with the, um, CNN's Freedom Project. I don't know if it's still going on, actually. I was living abroad last semester, so and I didn't speak the language in, in Austria, so I was watching a lot of CNN International and got a barrage of Freedom Project stuff. So, um, But the Freedom Project um, claims to, quote, um, be joining the fight to end modern-day slavery and shine a spotlight on the horrors of modern-day slavery, amplify the voices of the victims, highlight success stories, and help unravel the complicated tangle of criminal enterprises trading in human life. And so they've, they've tried to illustrate ways um, in which we are all implicated in modern day slavery. So they have stories um, such as, quote, your tomatoes possible ties to slavery. All right, so they're, they're really trying to, to make that link between the, the couch potato and, the, and, and slavery. Um, and so I think 19th century abolitionists were trailblazers in this respect. Um, they did, they staged boycotts of slave-produced products, slave-produced cotton, sugar, things like that. They wrote exposés, um, uh, just as CNN is now um, broadcasting, about the abuses suffered by enslaved people um, in the South. But they also knew 
um, very early on that the key to capturing people's sympathies was to shrink the distance between the enslaved and, and the, the free. So, to, 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 so that the, the free people, and mostly free white middle class people, but not entirely exclusively that group, um, would, would see some um, uh, a stake in, in the fight against uh, slavery. So they, they quickly figured out, abolitionists did, that, that the relatively new medium of photography was an ideal vehicle for this. And so that through photography they might reach a, a broader public, but also to change, change people's minds. All the images I'm going to show you were commissioned by abolitionists, anti-slavery activists. Um, what you're not going to see here, except for the last image I'm going to show you, are pictures of um, black slaves or even people that look like they might have been enslaved. Um, and that was the genius of this particular appeal, was that the people in these photographs looked like white, middle-class, Victorian um, children. They looked like the people that the abolitionists were trying to reach. And Josh Brown has already given us sort of an introduction to the history of photography. Um, this is a daguerreotype. So this was taken in the 1850s, mid-1850s. Um, and I'm, I'm going to talk about it here because it sort of um, was a, an important predecessor to some of the Civil War era pictures that I'm going to show you. So with, with daguerreotypes, you usually just had one version of a photograph. You couldn't mass produce it um, uh, like you could a carte de visite, which we've seen some of. Um, so this is a photograph of a little girl named Mary Botts. Uh, and it was taken in eight, around 1854 and was really sort of the direct result of the Fugitive Slave Act, which was passed in 1850, um, which made it a felony to aid fugitive slaves, among other things. So the Fugitive Slave Act sort of outraged anti-slavery activists in the North anyway, because it basically said, you're now implicated in the system. All right? So it made them angry. Um, and uh, spawned things like Uncle Tom's Cabin, and then from Uncle Tom's Cabin, more fiction, um, uh, sentimental fiction that was supposed to sort of pull people's heartstrings and get them um, interested in, in, the, in the fight against slavery. So photography was sort of an ex using photography in this way is sort of an extension of that. Um, the father of Mary Botts was a fugitive slave. He was living in Boston and, and freed, managed to free his family, raised enough money to free his family with the help of some prominent people. And this was a, excuse me, a photograph taken of his middle child, Mary. And I think it really sort of marked a new direction for the, for the movement in that it, it so economically sort of erased the distance between white northerners and southern, southern slavery. So. Um, uh, I said abolitionists commissioned all these pictures. This one in particular was taken or um, was commissioned by Charles Sumner of Massachusetts, um, the senator. And he, um, in, a, in a letter, he, he, he sent a letter to several newspapers and, and declared her um, bright and intelligent, another item A. I think her presence among us in Boston will be more effective than any speech I can make. Ida May was a fictional child. Um, she was a white child who was um, kidnapped and enslaved in South Carolina. And everybody in New England who was reading anti-slavery fiction knew who Ida May was. This child was not white. She had been a slave. Her father was a fugitive slave. She was still a slave in Virginia until he managed to have her freed. So Sumner, I think, pretty quickly realized the, what the appeal would be to have photograph of this child taken. So he, he requested her daguerreotype be made um, as, quote, an illustration of slavery. Okay? And, he, and he makes it available to, to Massachusetts senators and stuff. 
The New York Daily Times declared her, quote, one of the most indisputable white children that we have ever seen. The Liberator characterized her image as, quote, a portrait of a most beautiful white girl with high forehead, straight hair, intellectual appearance, and decidedly attractive features. Uh, and in his letter that, that, that he published, Sumner, that Sumner published, he said, let a hard-hearted hunker look at it and be softened. So he clearly understood, I think, um, and he's talking about the photograph there, not the girl, right? She, she goes, gets toured around and all that, but he's talking about the photograph. So I think photographs of Mary Botts, or Ida May, as, as her name was, as she was known to the public, it was combined with that well-known story. And it played on fears that slave catchers would, could take white children into slavery if, if the slave power wasn't held in check. You start to see more of those stories in, 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 the, in the press, although it's, they're kind of specious, but you start to see more of those. So it's, but it's also a critique of the system of slavery that would produce a child that looked like a white child, right? So this, I think, as far as I can determine, was sort of the first photograph like this of a, of a, a white-looking child um, who had been enslaved and was produced for um, abolitionist purposes. And then there were lots of descendants of um, Mary Botts or, or Ida Mae. Um, this, I'm just going to show you a couple of examples. Um, these are carte de visites, which means that um, they were fairly cheaply reproduced and could be bought um, fairly cheaply. And this girl, Rebecca, you can see at the bottom, an emancipated slave from New Orleans. And she was photographed in New York. There was a whole group of um, freed people, mostly children from New Orleans, who were taken north on tour during the Civil War. This was about 1863, 1864. Uh, and, and their portraits were, were made. And there, there, there are lots of different poses. So we know that they took a lot of pictures of these children. Um, and so the question that was raised earlier um, about distribution and reception is, is interesting. I mean, there are a lot of, of these images in archives, and in archives all over the all over the place, not just one archive, and lots of different poses. Um, the proceeds of these photographs went to the education of free people in Louisiana. The Union has already occupied um, New Orleans by this point. So they were produced to raise money for that effort, but they were, I think, also produced um, because it com they come out in the middle of the War in 1863, the support for the war is kind of waning in the North. Um, and I think that these, these photographs had a lot more to say um, about, um, uh, um, they had a message that was sort of aimed to bolster um, sagging support of the war. So in other words, if slavery isn't stopped now, right, um, uh, children like this child who looks like a white child um, will, will be vulnerable, or at the very least, they will become the concubines of southern planters. And so that's one of the interesting things about the choice to mostly photograph little girls. Most of the photographs of this group are of um, the light-skinned little girls. And that's because when 19th century viewers looked at these images, they were already, they, they had a story already attached to, to the notion of a very light-skinned female slave and that they were very high in value in the South, that they became concubines of, of, of planters. Um, and so this was an effort to sort of say, you know, you can intervene, right? This child looks like she could be in your photograph album, but she was a slave and there are other girls like this in the South. 
so you have the power to, to do something about it. So this sort of appeal through the, the vulnerable, vulnerable body of a, a white-looking um, girl. Now, the question is, well, how do we know that this is the way people uh, during the Civil War were reading, um, reading these images? We have some evidence of the public appearances of girls like Rebecca and what was said at those public appearances by people like Henry Ward Beecher. Um, and the sorts of things he's saying is just what I've just described to you, which is that she's going to be a, um, the object of sin if you don't step in. Right? You know, look at this child, you know what her future is. I mean, he's really saying these things. So I think people were also reading these photographs um, in, a, in a similar way. Here's another from the same, that same series of photographs. Um, this is Isaac and Rosa. There were, there were three very light-skinned children and two less light-skinned children, Isaac being the darkest um, in skin color, who were part of this group from, from Louisiana. I think this picture in particular was, uh, was really um, strategic. It's a very economical argument about a lot of things, about the sort of spectrum of race that slavery has produced, or racial features, if you want to say it that way. And we know that, although if you first glance you look at this photograph and you're a 19th century person, you, you say well, that's a white child and a black child, but people would have known that she wasn't white. There wouldn't have been any question that she was white because she wouldn't be standing arm in arm with a black child in this, in this way. And so um, I, I think that the, this picture of an Isaac and Rosa you know, had a very sort of pointed, uh, pointed message um, uh, behind it. So again, this notion of um, appealing, appealing to maybe white middle class viewers' ideas um, uh, about slavery by using sort of a, a sort of a radical use of convention. I think they're using studio portraiture. They're dressing the children in, in very you know sort of middle class looking clothes. This is not the sort of image you're not seeing here. Sort of like the image that Anthony was showing us is of the ragged slave child. Um, Topsy would have been, if you, if you had said, I'm going to show you a, an image of a slave child at this period, people might have expected to see Topsy. Um, this is not what they would expect to see. This, this last pair of images uh, is sort of the direction, I think, that sort of reform photography takes after the Civil War. This image is, is about the same period of time as the, the the portrait of Rebecca and the portrait of Isaac and Rosa, about 1864. But but this, I think, um, and, and witness, again, the, the photograph that, that Anthony was talking about, um, this was more the trend that, that would follow um, from the Civil War and, um, and later. And I think here, people um, generally would have seen this one and this one. All right, we can go back and forth. <laughs> before and after, before and after. And here again, I, I want to argue that I think that, that anti-slavery activists really very quickly harnessed the power of photography. In, in this case, I think it's sort of early advocacy documentary kind of for, photography, um, this notion of before and after, and the magic of the camera, of course, that, that these children, and, and they're very clearly sort of, it's, it's very staged um, in terms of them both standing in the, in the in in the same studio, but, but taken at slightly different angles, so you don't really notice that they're in the, in the same space, 
right? But 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 moving from sort of rags to to respectability, right? Within the within the course of this photography. So again, the picture that people would have expected to see would be of enslaved people would have been that this sort of um, ragged ragged um, image. But but here they're making the argument that don't worry, <laughs> that that. Former slaves, particularly children, can be transformed into respectable, industrious, um, educable citizens. Uh, and that this new generation was something to be positive about um, rather, than, rather than, than negative. So um, what's the legacy of all this? I think, as I said, I think this photograph, this, this pair of photographs, reflects what, what comes later. I mean, there are British photographers in the 1870s that are famous for taking these kind of before and after pictures. I think those might even be more familiar than, than this one, but I, I tend to think that it was actually anti-slavery activists who took the first kind of before and after picture, right? So sort of setting in motion this new kind of photographic humanitarianism. And then, but of the, the, the other children, they haven't gotten very much attention um, from historians until fairly recently. Part of, part of that, I think, is because immediately after the Civil War, they had no more utility. That nobody wanted to see white-looking people who, could, who had been enslaved who could pass for white. That wasn't an image that was going to help reformers, and it was, certainly wasn't an image of people who were opposed to the sort of equality of, of, of African um, Americans. And I'll say that Mary Botts's photograph in particular was unidentified. She was identified as a slave child uh, in whom the governor of Massachusetts was interested, and that's how she existed in the archives until 2007, until I was able to piece together some of the documentation surrounding her story and give her, and actually give her a name. But if you know about daguerreotypes in, in archives, um, it's very hard to, you can't inscribe on the surface of a daguerreotype very easily. Like you can with a carte de visite, people can make notes and tell you what these are. With daguerreotypes, that's not the case. So she could have just as easily existed in the archives unidentified, you know, under the assumption that she was a middle class white child. We wouldn't have known the difference. So it's very, it's very um, uh, slippery in that way. Um, but I think. In terms of the Civil War that, that we don't remember, I think there's a whole sort of set of ideas about um, children and about race and about photography um, that haven't been part of that larger narrative. Okay, thank you. Thank you.